As we journey through the life of Christ and the accounts of the life of Christ, we often read it through the, the lens of Jesus. We read to see what Jesus did, what Jesus said, how he lived and what he taught. And as we examine the people that he met, which is what we've been doing the last few weeks in this series, we very often look through the perspective of Christ at what he's teaching and how he's interacting. And, and especially with these stories where there are people who, uh, who we know very little about. We don't know their story, except for these few verses where they encounter our Savior and where they have these conversations. Those few verses are all we know about them. And it's probably the most common way we read a Jesus story and we read one of these conversations is to look at Jesus and, and at how he responds. And maybe a more complete or proper way is to look at the people he's talking to and see how we are like them. Put ourselves into the story and see this encounter as, someone, as with someone who is like us and get to know Jesus a little more through that. That's what we've been trying to do. We looked at the example of uh, the first week, the Samaritan woman and Jesus approaching this woman to share with her his identity, who he was, who he is. Last week, we talked about the seekers. We had the rich young ruler who approached Jesus seeking his own justification. And we have Zacchaeus seeking Jesus in order to be justified and to be redeemed. And this week, we're going to talk about another encounter. And it's a little bit different than those first few because in every encounter we find Jesus having, every conversation he's having like this, these people he's met, someone in that first party or second party is there voluntarily. Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus. Zacchaeus looks for Jesus. In this story this morning, neither party is really there voluntarily. They are forced into the situation by a third party, and it comes in John chapter 8. If you want to turn to John chapter 8, we're going to talk about a forced conversation, a forced encounter, because of what a group of people was trying to do to Jesus. And, and when we read this story, we really spend a lot of time focusing on Jesus' response and why it is such brilliant rhetoric and why it is such a fantastic response to the challenge. The encounter we're reading about here this morning is not going to be focused on the encounter of Jesus and the Pharisees. It's going to be focused on the encounter of Jesus and a woman who has been shamed and living in sin. Verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now I just want you to try and imagine, if you will, that you're at church, and, and we're in the middle of a, a sermon or a Bible class, and someone drags in someone off the street. They've drugged them out of bed, if we're being realistic about it. 
dragged them here in front of everybody and says, this person was caught doing a horrible thing. What do we do about it? Now, the very evil purpose that supposed spiritual and religious leaders had in their heart for shaming someone in such a way is awful. It's despicable. This person, and we don't want to make any, any uh, excuse for the sin. There's definitely sin at work here. There's a breaking of the law happening here. But rather than correct the breaking of the law or deal with the sin, they take advantage of a sinful situation, caring not for her soul, caring not for her morality, dragging her before the crowd so that they can try and trap Jesus into making a decision on a prejudicial question. Now we're talking about sin that is, was supposed to be secret, now exposed. We're talking about it being very public. We're talking about the shame that comes with that. Now why would they ask such a question? The question they pose to Jesus is, this person has committed this act, this sin, according to the law, they should be stoned. Tell us what we should do. Now why would they ask that of Jesus? Because they want to put him in a corner where any answer serves their purpose. Let's suppose for a minute that Jesus says, you know what, you're right. That is what the law says, put her to death. Well, now Jesus has just condemned a woman to die. That's a problem. That's a problem with the people that are listening to him and following him. That will turn off the crowds that are supporting Jesus. The second thing it will do is it will justify and affirm the authority of the religious leaders because they're seeking to do just that. And if he says, absolutely, that's what the law says, you should do that, then he has just endorsed them as the authority for all faith and religion and morality in that society. So if he goes along with it, that's what happens. If he says, nope, don't put her to death, don't do it. I say you shouldn't, shouldn't follow the law. Then they've got him on blasphemy. Now he's not following the law. He's denying the authority of Moses and the law that was given to the people long ago. And he has lost all credibility. That seems like a no-win situation for any of us if the choice is binary, yes or no. And again, this interaction, Jesus didn't ask for it. The woman certainly didn't ask for it. But here they are. She's being used again now to make a point and to try and trap Jesus. So how does he respond? He responds brilliantly. Brilliantly. So they say, what do you say? Verse 6, they were saying this, testing him, so they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. I wish we did. We don't have a clue. It may not have had anything to do with what was going on. He might have just been distracting himself. He might have been trying to not look at what was before him. Who knows? There's a lot of different theories and speculation, but that's all they are. We don't know what he wrote. But he sits there writing. I, I like to think of this as kind of a disarming tactic that someone might use. Maybe that's what it is, maybe not. Do you remember the old, um, the old Columbo TV show? The detective Columbo, and he would always have one more question. He was always the smartest guy in the room. Very observant. He, he always seemed to get his man. But what made him so good at that job is he kind of seemed kind of dumb initially. 
He seemed to not be paying attention. He seemed to not really be listening. And it disarmed the guilty person in the story. So that later when he asked what seemed like an innocent question that was very pointed and direct, they might confess to a crime without even knowing it. He was a great character for that very reason. He was disarmingly intelligent. Jesus, I like to think, was sitting there acting as though he wasn't listening to what was happening, as if to disarm them, to get them worked up into a frenzy. And then he replies. It says, when they persisted, verse 7, in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what a response. That's not just a, a response of saying, well, none of you are perfect either. That's kind of a childish response. That's like you started it. Now, Jesus wasn't being childish or petulant or petty in his response to suggest that someone must be perfect in, in keeping the law or keeping the rules of God in order to accuse someone else. That's not really what he's saying. What he's pointing out is that they are trying to take the law and dissect it at the expense of this woman in order to trap someone they don't like. Their motives are not to ensure the faithful sanctity of the law. Their motives are to destroy people for their own gain. And what he points out here is, okay, you want to keep the law. You want to go to the law as your authority. And what he's really asking is, how many of you keep the law perfectly? Because if you're not keeping the law perfectly, then you are separated from God as much as this woman. How many of you have done things that by the letter of the law are worthy of death? That's a brilliant response. He takes their own religious pride their own self-confidence, uh, their own arrogance, their own surety in their perfection and throws it back on them. And that's what he, he stands there, he bends down, he's drawing in the dirt and he says, well, whichever one of you has never broken a law worthy of death, you go right ahead. And he goes right back to writing in the dirt. That's what I love about it. Just a brief answer. And one of the most brilliant responses to that kind of prejudicial question that I've ever read he stooped down and wrote in the ground again. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one. And this is interesting, beginning with the older ones. I always wondered why that is. I think maybe with their age came some wisdom and some understanding. They left first. The ones who were older, who were more experienced, who understood that they'd been beaten, that there was nothing of gain for them in this conversation. And so they left, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. So now everybody's left. And here are two people that did not seek one another out, and this is the conversation we're going to talk about. All of this that's led up to it is the circumstance surrounding this encounter of Jesus meeting a sinner. He's met, uh, he, he's, he's, he's met outcasts, he's met seekers, and now he's meeting a sinner. They didn't seek one another out, but here they are, and everyone's left, and they're alone now. What will Jesus say to this woman? Will he say, well, you know, they're, they're right. You got lucky this time, but they're right. You need to get your life right. Will he shame her further? Will he command her to get her life together? 
and then come back and see him? What will he say to this woman in sin? Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Did they not pass judgment? Did they not issue a sentence? Did they not bang the gavel and say, your life, your life is the cost of this sin? Did they not do that? They didn't condemn you, and she says, no one, Lord. No one's left. No one left to condemn. And Jesus responds, I do not condemn you either. Go from now and sin no more. That's amazing. That's ama- we read this story and we focus so much on that first part, don't we? We talk about how Jesus responds to the Pharisees. We talk about how Jesus responds to the people trying to trap him and how brilliant and intelligent and wise he is. But do we talk a lot about that conversation he has there? Three or four sentences long? Do we talk about his encounter with this woman that didn't ask to be there, that he didn't ask to be there? Do we talk about what that means for how Jesus sees us and by extension how God sees us? The response is not, I don't condemn you right now, but if you keep sinning, I will. The response is not, I want to have a relationship with you, but you've got to fix some things first. We look at this story and we look at our wonderful Savior and how he responds. And we look at our amazing Savior and what he does to rebut the enemies in his life. But do we look at this story and set ourselves in the place of this woman in the middle of the court, accused of sin, caught in the act of it? Do we see ourselves in that role? Like Marv was saying, when you study the book of Romans, it's pretty clear every one of us is this woman. Every one of us is a sinner. All of us have been in sin and could have been drugged before the church and shamed for it. Your sin may not be her sin. Your sin may be different. And maybe the world or the church culture has defined your sin as better or worse than what hers is. We do that too. We rank sin. But all sin condemns, all sin separates, but our Savior sits there before us with compassion and says, I have no reason to condemn you. Sinlessness and perfection is not a prerequisite to meeting Jesus. Look at the life of Paul. As he goes about under the name Saul, destroying and killing and overseeing the almost genocidal commitment to wiping out Christians. And then what happens to him? Does he, does he read a book and study the prophecy and come to an intellectual understanding that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and accept him? No, he doesn't fix anything before Jesus reveals himself on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, Paul was transformed. This woman, we don't know much about what happens after this. All we know is what Jesus told her. You've met me now. Now start living like it. I have met person after person after person over the years that I've tried to talk to and study with and encourage and bring into the fellowship with the body. And 
I have gotten the response, and maybe the most common response, um, objection to being a part of a church family, oh, I've done too many bad things in my life. They wouldn't want me there. I, there was one old guy at a town I used to preach in, and I would, his, his, his family all came to church with us, but he never did. And I worked on him, I visited him and talked to him, and, and he's since passed away, but he said, if I was to walk in that church building, the roof might collapse. He was convinced he wasn't good enough for Jesus anymore. How many of us could say that we are this woman? That we sit condemned by the world around us, by the religious community, by our own conscience. And yet Jesus looks at us no different than he looked at this woman and says, I have no reason to condemn you. No reason to turn you away. No reason to require anything of you prior to you meeting me. But now that you've met me, act like it. Live like it. Be different. That's really the key. Our salvation, coming to an understanding of God and his son, is really us meeting Jesus. At a certain point in our life, we recognize our state. We recognize our condition, our helplessness, our hopelessness, our need for a savior. And nothing is required except that we meet Jesus and then we live like we have. Come to know him and then act like it. But as we read this story, different than the others, because these two people did not seek one another out, circumstances brought them together, and the conversation that follows is, the, is where we should focus our attention when we read this story. Yes, what Jesus does with the Pharisees is amazing, and it's brilliant, but what he says to this woman is what he speaks to us as well. I do not condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. We are in the story. We are not merely spectators. We are not merely people in a, new, in a different era, in a different time, looking back on history and seeing what Jesus said to people. We are those people. And in some way, we have had that experience. I want to read for you something that a friend of mine wrote. It's kind of a poem, but it doesn't rhyme, so it's not one of those kind of poems. It says, if I had been in the garden that night, if I had been in the garden that night, I wish I'd been there. I would have stopped it. I would have pulled my gun and opened fire on the mob. They would have lost more than just an ear if I'd been there. If I'd been there, I would have confronted them as hypocrites, cowards, the embodiment of the will of Satan. Dress it up all you want, people. Wear your religious robes. Carry your scepters of office. But you are approaching the Son of God with malice. How could you? I tell myself I wouldn't have run away. I would have stood my ground, pulled my gun, unleashed hell on those coming to kill Jesus. And in doing so, I would have unleashed hell on all of us. For without the cross, there is no heaven. I know that, but it breaks my heart. Playing revenge fantasies in my mind is just a poor attempt at avoiding one salient fact. I am a man of sin and that places me in the middle of the mob. If I'd been there, I was there. Have mercy on me, O Lord. I was there. We all are in the story. And we all are the sinner 
drugged to the middle of town to be mocked, abused, and used to destroy who God says he is. The verse that Travis read refers to Satan as the accuser. That's probably my favorite way he's referred to in Scripture because that is the most literal definition of what Satan does. In fact, that word Satan, it's not his proper name. That's a name that comes from the Arabic world, Shatan, which still exists. Back when Iraq was under the control of Saddam Hussein, there were Shatans all over town. And if you were caught in the cafe whispering that you didn't like Saddam that much, they would go and tell the authorities and you would be drugged to jail and possibly killed. They were snitches. They went to the authorities and told them what you had done wrong. Look at Satan's interaction with God in the story of Job. He goes to me and says, you know that guy, I know you like him, but the only reason he's faithful to you is because you've blessed him so much. Don't you think Satan has those conversations with God? That's what he does. He stands before God and says, these people aren't worth what you're giving for them. They're not worth it. They've done terrible things. The Pharisees that day were the shatan. And today Satan drags us before the crowd and says, they're not worth it. They're not good enough. And Jesus looks at us with compassion and says, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here so you can meet me, so that you can be transformed. And from this day on, live like you've met Jesus. And the encouragement this morning as we place ourselves in that story is not to let the accusations of Satan and the pain and the guilt that we bear draw us away from living faithfully because Jesus is not trying to cast us out. He's trying to bring us in. We all seek to live a holy life we all want to obey and do what's right. But sin is a part of who we are. And in order to overcome it, we must grab onto his hand, accept that he takes us where we are, but he asks us to go where he's going. Go now and sin no more. If you're bogged down by sin and guilt and pain in your life for the things you've done, welcome to the club. I sympathize with you. It is a daily struggle for me as well because the, the, the hardest thing about being me is I know all the bad things I've done. And I think that's probably true for all of you too. If it is, then we have something in common and we can join together and continue to be a part of the story. Jesus doesn't ask us to be perfect when we come to him. He asks us to simply live as though we've met him when we leave that encounter. Marv read my mind this morning because he picked one of my favorite songs to lead following the lesson. And it says exactly what we're talking about. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's all we have. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. He just wants to be with us to set aside anything that gets in the way of that, even if it's your own guilt. The time has come to take hold of the promise and to follow him. If you have a need this morning, won't you come now as we stand and while we sing together.